Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much, Pastor Garth, for this invitation to, um, to share my story. Let's just pray before we begin, please. Almighty Father God, you are the God of love. And today, I just welcome your Holy Spirit here and ask you, Lord God, for a special impartation of the revelation of your great love for each and every single person sitting in this room today. Lord, that they might leave totally changed, having an encounter with you, knowing that you see them individually and singularly as one and unique, special, treasured, and cherished. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, today I'm going to share with you snippets from my journey of over 20 years of getting to know God the Father and what the biggest obstacle to that journey was. Because I hope that by sharing my story, you'll be able to reflect on your own journey and see that God has been stalking you even when you thought he wasn't looking or didn't care. Whenever I'm asked how I came to faith, I answer by the longest, most twisted and circuitous way, the hard way. Now this is ironic, since we were the poster family for Catholic excellence. I grew up in Manila and in our large family home, we had a shimmering golden altar guarded by a battalion of statues of the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ, and an army of Catholic saints. Piety was our middle name. Dad dutifully attended daily mass. Every day he would go, he would go to, to pray and to confess. And whenever he had the chance, he would go overseas on pilgrimage to wherever Our Lady had supernaturally appeared. So Fatima, Lourdes, Medjugorje, he would go. My mother was a devotee of our mother of perpetual help. This was a version of the Virgin Mary. And um, she had a huge shrine in Manila. And every Wednesday, which was her special feast day, 100,000 devotees would walk on their knees down a 95-meter-long nave praying the rosary. 95 meters is about the playing area of a rugby field. And of course, every night, we would kneel in front of the family altar, seeing just how many speed records we could break while saying the rosary. Hail Mary, full of grace, Holy Mary, Mother of God. Hail Mary, full of grace, Holy Mary, Mother of God. So I have two brothers and two sisters, and we all went to Catholic schools. And the nuns at my convent school taught us that God was love. He's your heavenly father, they would say. But because God was invisible, to be able to understand what father meant, I had to look to the only father I knew, and that was my earthly father. My dad was a grim, silent, assessing kind of person. He held himself apart because, really, he couldn't be bothered with us kids. He believed it was his job to bring home the bacon, and it was my mom's job to cook it. He ruled the office, she ruled the house. He was very much absent, except for the times when mom would pull him out of his den to dole out punishment when one of us kids was very naughty. Mom would hiss, you just wait until your father gets home. And one day, I discovered what that threat really meant. So when I was about eight years old, I must have done something to make my mom really mad. Because when I got home, she told Dad, she needs to be punished. I watched Dad's face grow tight with anger. And then he went into his den, and he came out with his bamboo cane. My heart started to race. First, he whipped me. And then he told the maid to scatter mung beans. These are short, sharp pellets. He told me to scatter the mung beans on the cement. And he said, kneel. 
And I said, Dad, please. And he said, kneel on the beans right now and stretch out your arms. And so I stretched out my arms, and into each hand he put a heavy leather floor-shime shoe into which, a leather, uh, into which a wooden and metal shoe tree was inserted. Now, if you imagine a scrawny little eight-year-old kid in shorts, kneeling in 35-degree heat with her arms out like that, it was not a pretty picture. And soon, um, little fat red ants started crawling up my knees, crawling up my legs, inviting me. So I put down one hand to swat them away, and whack! Dad was true to his word. So I needed to learn that I was not a good person, and I needed discipline. And that's what Dad was showing me, that I needed discipline, and this was all part of shaping my character. So when it came to approaching God as Father, I had to remind myself to proceed with caution. Because if God was like my father, he was a tyrant who had to be both pleased and appeased. If God was like my father, he would let bad things happen to me to discipline me and to shape my character. If God was like my father, I instinctively knew that he wasn't safe and that I couldn't trust him. All I wanted from dad was what any kid would want from their dad, love and acceptance. I wanted to know that he thought I wasn't ugly, useless, or worthless. But what I got instead was discipline, and that meant you're just not good enough for me to love. So I trained myself to be the good girl, the one who obeyed all the rules, who pleased all the authority figures, and got excellent grades, because whenever I got a gold medal at the end of the school year, I got one of my dad's rare smiles. And from this, I concluded that to be loved, I needed to be obedient, good, and successful. So naturally, I became a very high achiever, winning top honors every year. And I also became such a good girl that upon graduating from high school at the age of 16, not one but two religious orders of nuns invited me to become one of them. After giving it serious consideration and thinking of taking the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, I thought, yeah, nah. <laughs> so instead, I went to the leading Jesuit university in the city and majored in philosophy and started the great exploration of ideas that every university student goes through. At this university, I met a young American missionary from Campus Crusade for Christ. Her name was Kathy Van Antwerp. And she pulled out her little booklet called the Four Spiritual Laws. <laughs> I can tell you know what I'm talking about. So she shared with me why I needed to be saved. And I looked at her and I said, but you know, Kathy, I'm Catholic. I don't need saving. It's you Protestants that need to be saved. So we engaged in this back and forth conversation about our beliefs. And what stood out for me was the prominence that Jesus played in her beliefs. Jesus was not prominent in mine. You see, to us Catholics, the Virgin Mary, or as we called her, Mama Mary, was the rock star. Everyone prayed to her. She was good and kind and loving. She was like the good mom who protected you from an angry dad. And she petitioned him on your behalf. So we would pray, oh, Mama Mary, please, please, please ask God to forgive me for my sins and please help me to pass my exam. That's how we would pray. You might wonder where Jesus was in this galaxy of celestial luminaries. Well, Jesus was on the margins. He was peripheral, incidental, a manager, not a CEO. 
You never really needed to pray to Jesus because there was a saint for every need. If you were single, 60, and wanted to be married, you prayed to St. Jude because he was the patron saint of the impossible. <laughs> if you lost your keys, you did a nine-day novena to St. Anthony, who was the patron saint of lost things, and after nine days, your keys would turn up. If you were going overseas, you made sure to wear a St. Christopher medallion to ward off all evil spirits. As for Jesus, he was portrayed as the crucified Son of God, who had done his job of dying for us all, and he now benignly reigned from heaven. An ex-Catholic priest who was a teacher of mine confided to me that during seminary training, the future priests were asked, if you saw Jesus and the Pope walking side by side, and Jesus told you to do one thing, and the Pope asked you to do another thing, who should you obey? And the correct answer is, you obey the Pope. Because Jesus was in heaven, but the Pope was his living representative here on earth. So like many Catholics I knew, we obeyed the rules of the institution, but I didn't have a relationship with God, except for one marked by fear and guilt. And as many of you know, us Catholics managed to elevate guilt to an art form. We'd sin during the week, confess our sins on Sunday, and start Monday with a clean slate. Like all good Catholics, I did good works, praying, fasting, saying novenas, um, abstaining from meat, all to earn my way into heaven, because that would please God. And since I knew that God was just a bigger version of my earthly father, I definitely wanted to please him. But I was like a cautious bird who always kept my eye on the big cat so that I could fly before he could pounce. Now, all my life, I've been a seeker. I've always been incredibly curious about the spiritual, the supernatural, the esoteric, and the occult. This dark, hidden world was intriguing and beguiling. So naturally, I took to the New Age like a duck to water. One thing I liked about the New Age was that I could acquire supernatural power without having to be dependent on a capricious God. The New Age teaches you that you are God, you see? And if you are God, you don't need to depend on another God. So it gave me control. And I started reading books on mysticism, Zen Buddhism, Hinduism, and Eastern philosophy, upon which most of the New Age is based. The older I got, the more I enjoyed going to fortune tellers, crystal healers, tarot card readers, and psychics. My own aunt was a fortune teller. So when I worked in television, I thought the first thing I want to do is tell everybody about this, and I would do a short documentary features, including ones on aliens and, and unidentified flying objects, because I thought this was part of my way of educating people about the other reality that we're not aware of. But little did I know that my dabbling in the New Age would lead to an encounter with evil. It happened while I was working as the public relations manager for a five-star Hyatt hotel and resort in the mountain city of Baguio. Now, Baguio was well-renowned throughout the world for being the city of faith healers and psychic healers. And so because we had a five-star resort up there, I thought, well, the hotel's always fully booked. Why don't I organize psychic festivals? That'll be fun. So I, I gathered, I invited people to come from um, all over Manila, and they were tea leaf readers and um, people who could cleanse your aura, etc. And um, people could come and have their star charts made by astrologers, have their tea leaves read, have their ailments healed, have their auras cleansed, and have their vibrations raised. 
Then one day, I was offered the opportunity to meet a white witch. And I figured, that's not too bad, since white witches are the good kind of evil, right? They use their power for good, not ill. So that shouldn't hurt. Well, I had a blistering headache the day we met. And the witch told me that the headache was caused by a disembodied spirit that he could see perched on my back. This spirit had prematurely left this life, he said, and wanted to re-enter the world, but he needed a body in which to do it, and he wanted my body. And I said, no way, he cannot have my body, I told him. So he offered to get rid of it for me. And while I'm at it, he asked, would you like to have the power to have anything that you want? I thought, can you do that? And he said, sure. So I said, definitely. So he said, give me something that you wear on your person all the time. So I took off my silver ring and I gave it to him. And he uttered a spell over my ring and he told me to visualize whatever I wanted while holding that ring and whatever I wanted would materialize over time. So I went home stoked that now I had the power to acquire anything I wanted without having to pray for it. Well, that night, I couldn't sleep. As soon as I closed my eyes, I had this creepy sense that the room was filled with hundreds of pairs of eyes, and they were all watching me. And when I finally managed to sleep, I dreamt of an underground cavern where there were two, two rows of hooded monks filing past one another in utter silence. And when I peeked under their hood, there was nothing there, utter blackness, no faces. There were no faces under those hoods, so I tossed and turned and I just could not rest. And the following night was no less horrifying because when I finally closed my eyes, I could see on the side of my bed, standing guard watching me was a family of about five mud creatures standing beside my bed in descending height and just watching me. Their eerie presence pervaded the room. I was so terror-stricken, I wanted to get rid of the ring the following day. I said, tomorrow, this is gone. But early the next morning, before I could get rid of the ring, the telephone rang, and it was the White Witch. And he said, Corey, I have a feeling you're thinking of getting rid of the ring. Goosebumps erupted all over my body when he said that. And he said, listen, listen, let's just talk it over. I know you're returning to Baguio today. Why don't you send me a photograph of yourself? And that way, whenever you need help, I'll be able to send you help spiritually. But by that time, I knew enough about witchcraft to know that if I gave him my photo, I would be turning over my power to him, and he would be able to wield power over me. So as soon as I returned to Baguio, I rushed straight to the nearest Catholic church. I dunked the ring in holy water, and I called a priest and asked him to exorcise this ring but I never wore it again, just to be sure. Shortly after that episode, someone gave me a copy of a book called The Beautiful Side of Evil, written by Johanna Michelson. It was about a young Christian girl's encounter with a faith healer and how her eyes were eventually opened to the source behind that healer's real power. It was in this book that I learned about the power of Jesus' name, which was a real blessing because one night, I had the horrific experience of being strangled. I, I, had this, I felt this malevolent force grab my neck and squeeze it tight like a vice. 
until I felt I had no breath left with which to speak. And suddenly I remembered, there's power in the name of Jesus. So I started saying, ch, ch. I couldn't get his name out. But finally I said, Jesus. And the, and the evil presence left. And I was set free. Shaking with terror, it finally dawned on me that I had had no idea what forces I had been playing with. During my years in the New Age, I thought that I had discovered esoteric knowledge, secrets to acquiring power for myself that I could use for good. What a lie that turned out to be. Well, after that terrifying experience, I knew I needed help. But at the same time, I felt conflicted because I didn't want to give up my godness and my control and my ability to live life without God. But at the same time, I thought, is it worth, is it worth um, the price I need to pay for dallying with demonic spirits? Is this personal power worth the consequences of dallying with demonic spirits? And I realized, no, it was not. So when Neil Anderson of Freedom in Christ Ministries visited Manila to teach the Bondage Breaker Seminar, which was his outreach to New Agers, I signed up to go with his co-teacher, Carl, and he took me through three hours of repentance and deliverance for all of my involvement in the New Age and the occult. And that day, I was delivered from the kingdom of darkness and ushered into the kingdom of light. Hallelujah. Yes. Well, after my deliverance, the wife of my Hyatt general manager introduced me to her church friends. And she pointed me out to them and said, get her saved. So I became their assignment. One couple spent many hours meeting with me over several weeks and months, patiently answering my many questions. Until finally, one day, they said, Corey, we're out now, but on your way home, if you were to get hit by a bus, would you rather die saved or would you rather die with all your questions? And I said, of course I'd rather die saved. Great, sign on the dotted line. And they led me in praying the salvation prayer. But I did not feel saved. That I didn't feel born again. They said, wow, this is great, you're born again. But I didn't feel born again. I didn't feel relief. Instead, I felt like I had been pressured and manipulated by persistent network marketers into buying one of their products. And I think it's because when I prayed that prayer, it was more because I feared hell than because I loved God. And sadly, my image of God remained the same. I still thought of God as just being a bigger version of my father. I spent a number of years in that fundamentalist church. Then later, I got hooked into a Christian cult. And after that, I fell into a prosperity gospel church. And soon, my image of God looked like one very confused, genetically modified hybrid. I could not make out who he was. Was he a genie whom I could manipulate by, by stating and standing on the right prosperity scriptures? Was he someone with such low self-esteem that he constantly needed to be praised and worshipped? Was he a crafty manipulator who needed to keep people dependent so that he could feel important and needed? Or was he just a tyrant who was impossible to please? When I viewed him as arrogant, capricious, and temperamental, I knew I could not trust him. And when I viewed him as someone who was demanding and difficult to please, I knew I could not love him. So I was stuck. A.W. Tozer says that what comes into mind when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. Now, I always wondered about that statement. I always wondered why Tozer didn't stop at saying what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing. Why did he say it's the most important thing about us? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that he's right. Because our image of God will determine whether we want to have a relationship with him or flee fast in the opposite direction. And for as long as we have a toxic image of God, we will avoid him and never know who we really are. Because the only one who can tell us who we really are is the one who made us. So I was caught in the vicious trap from which there seemed to be no help. I stopped going to church because I was so confused. And in desperation, I cried out to God, Will the real God please stand up? Every day I begged him, God, if you're there, if you can hear me, please reveal yourself to me for who you really are. I need to know you. I need your help. I need to see you for who you are. Everybody's telling me different things about you, and I want to know the truth. Please have mercy. Show me who you are. Day after day, this was my heart's cry. Well, God finally heard me, and the healing began in late 2009. A friend introduced me to Margaret, a deep and contemplative woman who became my spiritual director. What I liked about her was that although she was a Protestant, she had a deep respect for the contemplative and wisdom traditions of the Catholic Church. It was to her that I brought all my shameful questions about a God that I was terrified of and did not trust. Often, when I'd ask Margaret a shocking question, I would cover my face in shame because I knew that that question would surely provoke God to hurl a lightning bolt at me and provoke Margaret to judge me. I was so ashamed of my questions and my doubt. But instead, Margaret was unerringly gentle and patient, and she provided a safe place for me to fall. She was not threatened by my shocking questions or scared by my experiences. Instead, she was full of gentleness and love. And over many years, she revealed to me a God whose love was big enough to embrace all of my doubts, my fears, my resentments, and my anger. One of the most important things we did together was go through the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. We did that for 18 months. And this process took me through the Bible where I, con where I encountered the real Jesus, both human and divine, the powerful, compassionate, loving, righteous, prophetic, subversive Jesus Christ, rather than gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Margaret said, Corey, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So if you want to know who the Father is, look to Jesus. Don't look to your dad. A teacher once told me that in our minds, there are three drawers. A truth drawer, an undecided drawer, and a lie drawer. And if we take a lie and put it in the truth drawer, a lie like, God doesn't care about me, I'm not important to him, I've done too many bad things he can never forgive me for. If we put a lie like that in the truth drawer, then how do you think we will behave? Will we want to spend time with God? Will we look forward to being with him? No. Instead, we will most likely look for more evidence to prove that what we believe is true. And then we'll become prisoners to the lie, just like I was. 
At the Living Wisdom School of Counseling, teacher Richard Black showed me that the harsh, judgmental, autocratic God whom I blamed for everything that went wrong in my life, that hateful God was just a lie, a figment of my imagination. He said, that lie was conjured up by your pain and your disappointment, but that's not the real God. You're believing in a phantom. This was a shock because I thought it was the truth for decades. So I needed to wash my mind with truth from the Bible, and I repented of all the lies that I believed. But I also had a long road of needing to forgive and repent for all the lies I believed, forgiving and repenting of the, the judgments I held against my parents, and I needed to forgive my parents for the wrong that I felt they did against me. So this took me a very long time. I had to forgive myself, and I needed to forgive God. And of course, God was not at fault, but in my mind, he was. So I needed to forgive and release him. This was not an overnight thing. It took me 10 years just to forgive my dad. It took me even longer to forgive and release my mom. But I did it because I wanted to be free. When Jesus said, forgive 70 times, seven times, he meant it because forgiving isn't instant, right? And for as long as a memory would cause pain, I knew there was still some more forgiving to do. So I just kept on doing that because I wanted to be free. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died for me before I'd even repented. He didn't say, okay, Corey, try harder, and maybe one day when you're perfect, I'll love you. No, he didn't say that. While I was still a sinner, while I was still shaking my fist at him, while I was still angry, he died for me. My toxic image of God had kept me away from him for a long time. But do you know what finally convinced me that it was possible that God might be love? It was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and his love for me. Because Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of the, God, of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his being. That verse alone showed me that God was not like my dad. He was like Jesus. So now I wanted to know him. Well, one day, sometime in the middle of my year and a half journey through the spiritual exercises, I was praying, and suddenly I felt a presence in the room. I felt that Jesus was there with me. And he took my hand and he said, Corey, come, I want you to meet somebody. Then he led me into the throne room and introduced me to the Father. And the Father rushed out to me and caught me up in his arms and hugged me tight. And his face was wild with delight. And he looked at me and said, Daughter, I have waited a long time for this. I finally met my papa. That's when I knew that in my father's house, there is a place for me. And that God is for me and not against me. Why does this matter? Because only in knowing who I am in his eyes do I see my true worth and my identity. My identity is this. I am a loved child of God. I am valuable because he says I'm valuable. I don't have to earn his love. He loves me, period. And there's nothing I can do about it. And the good news for each one of you here is the same thing, that he loves you, 
period, that he sees you. He doesn't see you as a bunch of churchgoers. No, he sees Garth and Margaret and Phil and Jackie and Wendy and, and Meryl. He sees you all individually, and he loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Who, he are, who, we, he, who we are is who he says we are, loved, accepted, forgiven, and redeemed. You know that song, Reckless Love, by Corey Asprey? He says, um, I, I couldn't earn it, I couldn't earn his love, and I don't deserve it. I certainly didn't. I was shaking my fist at God for so many years. I was falsely accusing him, and yet Jesus came to die for me. So as God heals my heart, I'm continuing on the journey of finding greater freedom and abundant life in Christ. But now I know that however much I want that, he wants it even more. And to that God who stalked me until his love won me over, be all the glory. Amen. Okay, well, the music.